Let us now pray together that the Lord may prepare our hearts for the receiving of his word. Heavenly Father, you instruct us by your holy scriptures. We petition you by your grace to enlighten our minds and cleanse our hearts, that reading, hearing, and meditating upon your word, we may rightly understand and heartily embrace the things that you have revealed in them. By the Spirit, cause the reading of the gospel in your word to become a holy seed that may be received into our hearts as into good ground, and that we may not only hear your word, but keep it, living into conformity with your precepts, relying on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let us read our gospel reading, beginning in verse 12 of Mark chapter 1. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So you may have noticed in that passage several times the word immediately showing up. The gospel of Mark moves quickly through the ministry of Jesus. There's a sense of if I bear and say the word, immediacy to what's going on. Mark announces that Jesus is the Son of God in verse 1. That is that Jesus, as the Son of God, is king over all the world and all the peoples of the world. This is the urgency of the message that the kingdom is at a hand, that the king has come. Mark uses the word immediately eight times in the first chapter, and 36 times in his entire gospel. When Jesus is baptized, immediately the heavens were ripped open, and the Spirit descended on Jesus, and God spoke. Mark tells us that after his baptism, that immediately the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days, where he will be tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't include many details of Jesus' temptation, but we know from the other gospel accounts that Satan attempts to cause Jesus not to believe God's word. That is what Satan does to us all in temptation. He attempts to make us distrust God, to look to ourselves, to look to others, to anything or anyone but God for deliverance, and answers to how to live our lives. Jesus, of course, defeats Satan by quoting Scripture, thus showing us that we can trust and believe the words of God. 
Mark makes several other observations about the temptation of Jesus. In contrast to Adam in the garden, Jesus is in the wilderness and surrounded by wild beasts. Adam was surrounded by animals who were at peace with him. When Jesus undergoes the battle to defeat the serpent, Jesus believes God and defeats Satan. And thus, instead of angels barring Jesus from the sanctuary, the angels minister to Jesus. Following God, being a disciple of Christ, you will have gifts and hard providences with those gifts. John the forerunner, who is being faithful to God and preaching the word, he is proclaiming repentance to the people, and he does it even to Herod. And when this happens, in his faithfulness, he is thrown into prison. As a matter of fact, we believe in the providences of God. John is delivered over to his enemies for God's purposes. Looking at verse 14, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The phrase that John was put into prison seems like just a simple explanation in time. But it is better understood in the Greek as delivered over to prison, delivered over to his enemies. Mark, by the Spirit, uses the same word to describe the actions of Judas Iscariot in Mark 7. He also uses it to, to describe the actions of those who plot against Jesus in Mark 9 and chapter 10. He also uses it to describe the chief priests when they deliver Jesus over to Pilate on the early morning of Christ's crucifixion. Jesus uses this word concerning the persecution of his disciples in Mark chapter 13. Like John, Jesus will be turned over to his enemies for his glory and our benefit. The kingdom comes because the king has come. Jesus came to Galilee, <coughs> excuse me, a place that was filled with Jews and Gentiles, and he was preaching. And what was he saying? He said this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We must repent, people of God, because God's kingdom is at hand. And I think that's hard for us sometimes because we look all around us and we see the chaos, we see the wickedness, we see the church worldwide under persecution, and we see people pushing back against gospel truth and God's morality as described in His scriptures. And, we, and we're like, God's kingdom here, now, it is at hand. And we need to live a lifestyle of repentance and remembering that Jesus is come, is king, and the kingdom is, in fact, at hand, and even now. The people of Israel had their own version of what the Messiah, the anointed king, would do as their king. And, of course, it was influenced less by God's word and more by their own desires and a vision for themselves. They thought Jesus would come 
and defeat all their enemies and place them in charge of all the nations as governors and leaders. They're putting those wicked people in their place. This explains why Israel turned to many false messiahs before Christ's coming, during Christ's coming, and after Jesus came. They looked to violent and political answers to the problems in their world. They thought that they could restore their country through politicians and violent actions. They were trusting in men and in the means of men. They did not believe God. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 says this, Thus thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from Yahweh. They did not heed these encouraging words, this direction. They didn't even hear the words spoken by the Spirit through King Hezekiah in 2 2 Chronicles 32.8. This is what the king said by the power of the Spirit. With him, that is the enemy of God, is an arm of flesh, but with us is Yahweh our God to help us and to fight our battles. And it says, And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Lastly, the people of Israel in Christ's time did not believe the words of God in the Psalms. They should have been singing the Psalms. Maybe they weren't singing the Psalms at all in their corrupted worship. If they had been, one place they could have turned to was Psalm 146, verse 3, which would have reminded them in these words, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. Now this is a distinction between the Son of Man as it refers to Christ and the Son of Man who is just a person, a regular man in the world. Because there is no help. We can't look for solutions to the world around us in our politicians and in those that are gathering together for what they perceive the coming storm. Now, I want to be clear. As Christians, we need to participate by voting, by praying, by uh, speaking into um, our marketplace around us. But it's not our work. We're not going to solve these issues. God's got to change the hearts of men. Our victory, our restoration, really our reformation and right things are going to come through God, through Jesus Christ, and through our right worship and our day-to-day faithfulness. The people of Israel were deceived by Satan. They were not trusting in God and what His Word says. Some were trusting in their ancestry as sons of Abraham. Their trust was in being part of God's people and not believing God, and so living as God, and, and so they were not living in accordance to God's word. Can this implicate us, the church? Oh, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. I go to church on Sunday. But I'm not going to believe what God's word says about the things I do in my daily life or that I'm going to be delivered simply because I am in the people of God. Some were trusting in their ability to keep the law. 
instead of believing that their righteousness was not of themselves, but instead they believed, that, excuse me, <clears throat> what they were doing is they were saying, oh, I, I've, I've got all the right systems. I can follow God's word. I'm so right. The things I'm doing are so right. It's my works, my ability to follow the law. They were not following God's message of his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness that is found first in the Old Testament in believing in God's faithfulness through the sacrifices and then for us in Christ Jesus as the final sacrifice. Some, seeing all the chaos and oppression around them, trusted in men by joining with revolutionaries. They believed that they could change men by force. That the world can be transformed by the works of men. No, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in, not by force. You can't do that. So what does Jesus do? He comes, he shows up on the scene, and he declares the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is telling the people of Israel that the time is now. What is this gospel? Or what is this good news? It is that the king is here. It is that the kingdom is at hand. This call to repent and to turn is being spoken to the entire people of Israel. Jesus is moving through Israel, although he's largely in, in Galilee at this point, with the mixed multitude. There are both Jews, there are those who have intermarried, right? There's all kinds of Gentiles. The early days of his ministry, he doesn't even go to Jerusalem. He's out there proclaiming it to the nation, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. But it is being spoken to all of the people of Israel. And of course, his words do have an impact on their personal sins, which means for us, when God's word speaks to his church broadly, it of course confronts our personal sins. In a situation like this, it's about pride and self-sufficiency. I'm going to say, in our, in, in our circles, our pride in our own self-sufficiency, we have an obligation to be faithful, to work hard, to do it to God's glory. But we don't accomplish this work. It is all at the hand of God and His graciousness to us. So we must understand that we must turn from our own agenda. You must turn from your own vision. In, in your vision, you make plans and you think that you can change your life simply by the plans you make. Turn away from your own plans and repent. Your plans are not going to work. Even in the church, we can fall into our own views of what the kingdom of God is and does and will accomplish. Israel needed to drop their own views of the kingdom of God. 
just as each one of you needs to drop your view of the kingdom of God and submit yourself to what God's word says on these things. Repent and remove your pride and self-sufficiency. When we learn that our goals contradict God's purposes, we must repent, change our thinking, our attitudes, and our actions. And of course, some of that is done by coming into the house of God, singing God's word, hearing God's word read, hearing God's word preached. But you too at home need to read your Bible. But don't just do it, oh, I've got to check it off, or listen to my daily reading, or read my daily reading so I get my stuff done for the year, like a checklist. But rather, if you have to, go slower so that you can take those words and then say, how does my life line up to this? What is God saying in his word to me and for my family and for my church? You see, while Jesus is doing all this, while he's in Galilee, he calls his first disciples. Of course, last week we talked about how Jesus was, was attracting people, going and engaging with people, and some want to be his disciples. But here, Jesus goes out in a particular fashion, and he calls his first disciples. And of course, this is radically different than the rabbis and teachers of Jesus' day. If you were to follow a rabbi and wanted to become his disciple, you had to prove your worthiness to be in his school. You had to come up, show yourself. You had to be examined. You had to prove your worthiness to be a disciple of the teachers of the day. Jesus doesn't operate in that fashion. No, Jesus calls his disciples. He chose. And like the disciples, we are not worthy, but we are called by God before the foundations of the world to be his disciples. Now these disciples, these particular ones, they're not ordinary disciples. Jesus is calling them to a particular task of establishing his church as apostles. They're going to be the foundation stones of his church. So, but God, this is important, and children, listen up. God has called you. Maybe not to greatness, but he's called you to be his disciples and to follow him. Obey God's word at home. Obey God's word at school. Obey God's word in all that you do. Be faithful because God has called you before the foundations of the world. He planned to call you. And of course, Jesus calls his disciples to leave their old life behind. In verse 16, it says, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net, into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, I want to just say this. When you are confronted with God's word that says something different than what you've believed or been acting on or living through, do you then immediately change? Or are you trying to wrestle with God? Are you trying to negotiate with God? We need to do as the disciples did, and immediately leave those things behind. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. 
and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. When Jesus calls you as a disciple, you take on a newness of life. You now have new and different goals. Your priorities change. You no longer live as king of your own life. This call impacted the daily lives of Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Being a Christian sets a pattern of life for our, in our individual callings for transforming the world. Each one of you has a job, you have a family, it's all in different settings, different places. But God does have a pattern for you to live in your individual callings for transforming the world. They left their nets that day, but they did fish in their boats again, and we see this throughout the gospel. However, the orientation of their lives was centered on Jesus and God's kingdom from that point forward. Their lives became focused on transforming the world. Literally, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We too, too should in our newness of life have new goals. And how we achieve these goals should be done to God's glory. We must let go of our agendas and plans that do not conform to Scripture. We must leave behind our view of the kingdom of God. You know, when a fisherman leaves his nets behind, he is leaving his old life, his old way of thinking. We need to be living to glorify God and not for our own welfare and security. A few weeks ago, we discussed the implications of the new creation in Jesus' baptism. Jesus is the new creation incarnate. As Jesus was called from the water at his baptism, so Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These men will become the foundation stones of the new temple. It's, of course, very interesting that Jesus calls fishermen and not shepherds. If you look in the Old Testament, what do you see? All these references by the kings and the prophets to shepherds and the people of Israel being sheep. But the scriptures teach us that the sea and the fish in the sea symbolize the Gentiles. I'll make a couple of references here although there are many. Psalm 65, verse 7, You who still the noises of the sea, the noises of their waves, and the tumults of the people, they also who dwell in the farthest parts are afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. We see in Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, Daniel spoke, and of course this is the vision that he's getting um, <clears throat> about Christ's ascension is going to come in here. But he says this, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were made a stirring up of the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, and each from different from the other. And of course, in this, there's this description of these different beasts coming out of the sea. And they represent Gentile nations to a particular calling, but the Gentile nations. And, of course, we see these in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Luke and even in Revelation 13. We know 
that all the nations will be brought to God, blessed and converted. Psalm 67. And of course, God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 13, that all the peoples would be blessed through him. Jesus coming as king makes this possible. New life will come from God's people as his temple. New life is found in the river of life flowing from the temple. Just like in the Garden of Eden, all the world is watered by the river flowing from the sanctuary of God. The river of life flows from the new Eden, from the new creation, the incarnate Jesus Christ. Truly, then, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and the water, as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom of life covers more and more and more over time. We see this prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 47. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, and of course this is the vision where God is bringing Ezekiel around and showing him the establishment of the new temple the permanent and eternal temple. <clears throat> Ezekiel says this, Then he, that is God, brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing under the threshold. And of course, then we see that the water increases, first to his ankles, then to his knees, then to his waist, and to a place where he can't walk through it anymore. It's going to require him to swim. And what do we see in that vision? We see trees on the bank. And that the water brings life. A great multitude of fish, in fact, comes out of that. For they will be healed, bringing life wherever the river goes. And fishermen, this is important, will stand by it. And there's many kinds of fish. Verse 12 of Ezekiel 47 says, Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their waters, the water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food. Their leaves for medicine. This reminds us of what we see in John's vision in the Revelation of the New Jerusalem, the church. We hear the very same language. Revelation 22 verse 2 says this, In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The church is to be the fishers of men, by the Spirit flowing to the four corners of the earth. We are the trees that bring the healing to the nations. We are the living stones of the new temple built on the apostles and prophets. And of course, Jesus being the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.19 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into the holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Everyone in here is to be a fisher of men. When we live according to God's agenda and His view, we will not live as the unbelieving nations. We will not live in the chaos and the despair of unbelief. We are to grow in likeness of God. 
living in a way that is clearly in contrast with the other unbelieving world. And that turns us into fishers of men. We are to tell others of the king and his kingdom. And then you will bring them from chaos into the land of peace and life. We need to live the way we live because the king has come and his kingdom has come. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. When you are conforming to Christ, you will be in contrast to the world. They will ask questions like this. Why do you love your wife and speak well of her? How come your wife, you don't talk about your wife being a barrier to what you want to do? Why are you not living in anger towards your wife and children and, and that work that you labor at that God has given you to care and provide for them? Are you hearing me? Do your words look like that? Do you speak well of your wife? Or as they like to say, the proverbial ball and chain. That's a wicked speech. Your wife is not preventing you from doing your call. You're not living in anger. You're not complaining about the work that God has given you. It is his blessing for you. And when you speak well of your wife, and when you speak well of the gift of the job that God has given you, that's different than the world. Wives, why do you submit to your husband? Why do you speak and act with joy towards your husband and not as a gossip about his mistakes? It's not the way the world acts. Do you complain about your husband? Do you speak disrespectfully towards him? Or are you submitting? That's in contrast to the way the world lives. Every television show and movie out there seems like the wife knows everything and the man is an idiot. And all he does is goof things up. Now men, we kind of live to that sometimes, but we have to change and repent. And of course, what do we see all around us? Oh, let's speak poorly about them. They're going to ask, why do your children obey and serve others? That stands out. They're going to ask you this. Are we listening? Husbands, wives. Why do you not speak as your children are some kind of burden in your life? Why do you not act like your kids are the reasons for your stresses? Your children are your glorious call. And you're going to speak as if they're the ones tearing down the world. What world is that? Oh, that's the world you built. That's the world you want everyone to conform to. Now, of course, I'm absolutely about disciplining your children in love and restoring them properly and all of those things. Right? But this is your call, fathers, mothers. They will ask, why is your home full of joy and laughter instead of anger, bitterness, and strife? 
And of course, some of that's going to be the way you speak of it. But I would admonish you, how are they going to know what, that your household, that your table is full of joy? Hmm? You got to invite them. They got to be there to see it. Here's a question. They're going to they're going to see you differently if you don't murmur and complain. How come you're not bitter towards others? Why are you not angry at your failures of your parents? Why do you forgive? Why are you free from guilt? That's different and in contrast to the way the world works. Here's a big one. Why don't you live in fear of death? Now, of course, none of us just simply wants to embrace death. That's not the Christian way. But when God calls you, you receive it with joy. You trust in His providence, even if it looks hard. And if it, even if it looks hard in the lives of our loved ones. Why? Because the King has come. His kingdom has come. Let us pray together. Father, help us to understand these things. Help us to see our glorious calling and our individual callings in light of that glorious calling. Help us to reorient our lives around your grace and mercy that you have displayed to us in Jesus, your son, and in his work and by means of his resurrection and ascension to your right hand to secure for us a future that is glorious. So help us to be glad and rejoice and give thanks in all things, living faithfully no matter what happens, so that we can show forth your praises and the true life that you give to a world that does not understand. We ask this for Jesus' sake, who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.